Well, again, a very good morning to everyone here. Uh, great to see your faces. Some I saw last week, some are new. Look forward to getting to know you uh, in the days and weeks and months ahead. By way of reminder, my name is Reverend Roger Revel, and I am the newly arrived rector or senior pastor here at this uh, congregation, and it is a joy to be here. So today we're launching into a sermon series called Stories of Jesus. Between now and the start of Advent, which is the time leading up to Christmas, we're going to look at some stories of things Jesus did, and we're going to look at some stories that Jesus told, some of his parables. And in both cases, we're going to encounter stories that were and are shocking and sometimes scandalous, because Jesus was not afraid to challenge and unsettle. That's part of how he helps us. It's part of how he saves us, in fact. In picking these stories for you, I've tried to choose a range that will bring in some crucial themes of Jesus' ministry, bring that into focus, that will help us to understand what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God, because that's what we are. Before we're citizens of South Carolina or Polly's Island, before we're citizens of the United States of America, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And I hope these stories will help us to understand a little more deeply what it means to be saved and renewed by Jesus the Messiah. Let me put it this way. I hope this series, Stories of Jesus, will help you and me to see Jesus more clearly, to know him more nearly, and to love him more dearly. For that to happen, of course, the living God has to be at work in our midst, so let me start by praying that he would be. Come Holy Spirit, these words inspire. Fill them with your celestial fire. For if you are with us, nothing else matters, and if you are not, nothing else matters. Amen. Big thanks, by the way, to the folks in the AV booth are helping me with these slides today. So as with all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you know, uh, John, St. Matthew's central concern is to introduce us to this guy called Jesus. Who is this guy? And Matthew, of course, has a lot to say about this. And today, the answer to that question is that Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's a friend of sinners. Indeed, who Jesus chooses to be his friends was one of the most controversial aspects of his ministry. It's part of what got him killed. Because the company that Jesus kept infuriated a lot of people. It angered them. And those people went on to lobby successfully for his crucifixion. So as we ponder the kind of friend that Jesus is, there are three things I want us to consider out of the text this morning. First, I want us to take stock of who Jesus' friends are. Who's he hanging out with? Second, I want us to contemplate the purpose of his friendships. What's he doing through his friendships? And third, I want us to think about how our friendship with Jesus radically changes the way that we do friendship in our lives. Those are the three things. So let's start there with that first point. Who are Jesus' friends? If you went to his Facebook page and scrolled down, who would you see? If you were on his TikTok account for the younger generation, who would you see following him? Who would you find there? I think it's safe to say you'd find a lot of people that your mothers would not want you hanging out with. Because a lot of Jesus' friends, a large number of them in fact, were not well-mannered, middle-class, responsible, respectable types. They were scallywags. They were social and moral outcasts, people from the margins, untouchables, lepers and paralytics, prostitutes, publicans, people that were considered unclean according to Jewish ceremonial law at this time. The paralytic that we just read about there in verses 2 through 7, he would have fit this bill. He would have been a social untouchable of sorts. Many of his countrymen would have assumed that his crippled body, that paralysis, was some sort of divine punishment some sort of retribution for sinfulness. You see that kind of attitude in Jesus' own disciples over in John's Gospel, chapter 9. On that occasion, Jesus comes up to a blind man and they say, hey, Jesus, what did, 
what does, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or his parents? But somebody sinned. That's why he was born blind. But that's not how Jesus does not have that mentality. He has nothing to do. He has a fundamentally different attitude, which is why he approaches the paralyzed man in our story today, and he says, stand up, take your mat, walk home. He engages this guy. He approaches, engages, and he heals him. A gentle word of compassion, a kind touch to somebody who probably hadn't had a lot of compassionate words spoken to him, probably hadn't been kindly touched in decades, years, even decades. Now, if you keep on scrolling down Jesus' Facebook page, verses 9 through 13, you find some other controversial friends. One of them is a guy called Matthew. Sometimes he's known as Levi. He's the same guy that brought us this morning's gospel reading. Unlike the paralytic, Matthew was not a social untouchable as much as a moral untouchable. And how come? Because he was a tax collector. He was a publican. That's the older word. We, these days we would say tax collector. But here's something you need to know about Matthew's profession. Being a tax collector at this time was not like working for the IRS today. Very different sort of profession. It's hard to exaggerate the degree of animosity that first century Jewish people would have had to one of their own, Matthew was Jewish, who was working as a tax collector for the Roman overlords. He was collaborating with Rome. That's the state that was oppressing the Jewish people at this time. And to add insult to injury, Matthew would have been adding a little bit to the invoices. He would have been fleecing the taxpayers of Judea because that's nearly what everybody in his profession did. Add a little bit to the invoices. Very unjust. Let me put it like this. Being a tax collector for the Romans at this time would have been like being a Jewish collaborator with the Nazi state in the 1930s. What would your friends and family say if they found out? That's the degree of animosity that first century Jews held towards tax collectors like Matthew. People like him were banned from the Jewish courts. They were not allowed to go into the temple in Jerusalem. They were every bit as untouchable, as scorned, as lepers and prostitutes. Yeah, what does Jesus do? He comes up to this tax collector, and I can just imagine Matthew sitting there in all of his bling, platinum cufflinks, Gucci shoes. He's been fleecing people. He's living a good life. Jesus comes up to this guy and he says, Matthew, I want you. I want you to be my friend. And I think Matthew is probably dumbfounded because no religious person has ever spoken to him, let alone ask him to be their friend. And what does he do? He responds. He gets up. He leaves his profession. And he does the only thing he knows how to do. He throws a banging party. He throws a banging party. And who comes to that party? Well, they're all people just like Matthew, because those are the only friends he has. It's the seedy underbelly of the Galilean world. And so here we have Jesus elbow to elbow, drink in hand, partying with the most shady, reprehensible characters in all of town. There he is, the friend of sinners. There he is, the friend of sinners. What on earth is Jesus doing? What we're seeing here is a pattern that comes up throughout the Gospels. Jesus likes to befriend folks that the good people tend to despise. He, the losers, the outcasts, the shady people, the people that the Jewish establishment at that time considered dirty and defiled, moral, social, ethnic outsiders, sexual outsiders, women of ill repute, and men too. Cripples, lepers, tax collectors for the Romans, sinners. That's who he often picked for his friends. And Jesus takes up all these people that, that his world saw as deplorable, and he raises them up even to be leaders in his church. That's what happened with Matthew, who became Matthew the Apostle, who wrote the gospel we're looking at this morning. What is Jesus thinking? It's right there in verse 13. He says, I have not come 
to call the righteous. And I know, I know he just did this when he said righteous, in quotes. Not call, come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners who are repentant. And that is a point of paramount importance. It's a point I wish the world would understand because one of the most pervasive stereotypes of Christianity is that it is a religion for good people, for nice people, for the morally respectable types of the world. Not too long ago, I heard someone talking about their neighbors. Their neighbors are Christians, and this person described them with palpable irritation, I should add, as Mr. and Miss Perfect, the perfects. And she went on to say, I cannot become a Christian because I'm not that type. What's that type? She's not composed enough. She's not nice enough. She's not good enough. She's not together enough. Yet the truth right out of the mouth of Jesus this morning is that he has not come for the good but for the bad. He's not come for the perfect but for the flawed, for the sick. He is the doctor of sinners. He's the savior of the lost and wayward. And he can only do anything for people like Matthew and people like me and you if we know we're sick and we need his help. When's the last time you went to a doctor just because you were feeling great? You went in, you went in, the doctor said, hey, Ryan, what's wrong with you? Oh, nothing, I'm feeling great. I just thought I'd pop by and see how you're doing. <laughs> Nobody does that. Because you only go to the doctor if you know you're sick, if you need help, and you can't help yourself. And so, gang, the message is this. Jesus, he's saying, I am the Savior, not for the good, not for those who have it together, but for the sick. Which means... That Christianity, from one angle, at one level, is only for bad people. It's for flawed and imperfect people, which, by the way, in God's sight, that's all of us. Is there anyone, by the way, who's so far beyond the boundaries that God can do nothing for? Somebody that Jesus can't help, they're so far gone? The answer is yes, there is. Who is that person? That's somebody who thinks they're all right. Somebody who thinks they're okay and just fine, that they've, they've got it all together. Which, by the way, is precisely why Martin Luther, there's this picture there. He's a great reformer in the Reformation. He once said, beware of ever desiring such purity that you cease to see yourself as a sinner because Jesus Christ only dwells with sinners. Those are the ones he befriends. So ask yourself, I ask myself the same question, where would it be in this story? Where would I be? Where would you be? Would we be at the party with Matthew so excited that Jesus is in there, hanging out, loving, the flawed, the imperfect, keeping company with the sick and the wayward? Or would we be outside with those Pharisees? Wondering why on earth the Messiah is fraternizing with those sinful, dirty people. Are you sick enough to be one of Jesus' friends? I want to consider now the purpose of Jesus' friendship. I actually think it's nicely encapsulated in verse 6 and 7. This is when Jesus looks at the crippled man and he says, Stand up, be healed. Stand up, be healed, go home. Go back to, a good, to your life, restored. That's the purpose of Jesus' friendship, our healing and our elevation. Now, as I unpack this point, I want to begin by focusing a little bit on the Pharisees. These are the antagonists in this story. There they are in verse 11. Uh, they have a negative judgment about Jesus, uh, the company Jesus is, is, is keeping there. And, and they see Jesus hanging out with Matthew and all of Matthew's unsavory comrades, comrades, and they look on with disbelief and contempt. They grumble to the disciples, what is your master doing in there? Associating with all those tax collectors, sinners. What's going on here? These guys often get a bad rap, by the way. They're always sort of the bad guy in New Testament stories. But I think there's, there's, there's something here we can relate to. They're concerned about contamination. And at one level, we know this well, especially now after the last few years. We all know that if you're healthy and you come into contact with someone with COVID or the flu or whatever else, you might end up sick. That's why we say if you've got a 
got, got a disease or an illness, maybe stay home for the day. Don't go to work. Don't come to church. It's also why, by the way, I don't like to touch door handles and bathrooms, especially after I've just washed my hands. And so I'll wash my hands and I'll wait until someone else comes along and puts their hands on the grimy door <laughs> and I slip out. But sometimes it takes a while and Cindy wonders that I flush myself down the toilet. <laughs> so th they're concerned about contamination, but in their mind, it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just um, physical health that's the issue. It's also moral health and moral contamination. And they believe that your moral healthiness could be compromised by associating with people who are morally polluted. And so the strategy was to, you know, do moral and spiritual quarantine. Stay away from people like that. Avoid those people who are defiled and compromised morally. And, and by the way, I should add that that's not entirely without basis uh, in the law of the Old Testament. If you go back to a book called Leviticus, I'm sure it's all your, your, one of your favorite books in the Bible. The book of Leviticus in the Old Testament has a lot to say about ritual purity. That's their concern. The upshot is that they see Jesus touching diseased people and fraternizing with perverse tax collectors and hugging prostitutes, and they thought he's defiling himself, and he's breaking God's law. How could Jesus do this? What's wrong with him? He's going to get polluted. But that's not what happens at all. In fact, the opposite happens. Because when Jesus encounters people who are socially or morally sick or polluted or deemed to be, it's not the clean that becomes unclean, but the unclean that becomes clean. He infects his friends with holiness. He's a contagion of grace and goodness. Everything he touches becomes clean and it gets elevated. And so in that sense, he's actually fulfilling all that law in the Old Testament. He is the holy presence of God who can overcome any defilement. No matter what your record is. No matter what shame you might carry because of what's been done to you. Or what you may have done to people no matter how stained or dirty or filthy or unlovable you might feel, Jesus touches you and you're clean. He's a contagion of grace. That's what St. Matthew is telling us. That's what Jesus does for his friends, which means that while he accepts us as we are, he meets us and accepts us as we are. He doesn't leave us as we are. He changes us. He elevates us. There's repentance and renewal and restoration. And sometimes it happens to our bodies. These are kind of miracle stories. It always happens to our hearts. Let me put it another way. While Jesus does sometimes play the orthopedist, he fixes broken and contorted bones. Sometimes he plays the dermatologist, he heals leprous skin or skin disease. Lots of stories about that, and I've heard stories closer to our own time as well. He plays the orthopedist, the dermatologist. He always plays the cardiologist. He always plays the cardiologist, healing hearts that are wayward and wounded, scared, lost. And he summons us to a better way of existence, spiritually and morally. He calls Matthew out of his life as an exploitative tax collector because Jesus had much more worthwhile, much more noble things for Matthew to do. And he's got the same sorts of things for us to do. That's the purpose of Jesus' friendships, of God with us as our friend. Do you know it? Have you tasted it? Perhaps you've forgotten it. These are questions that this story leaves at our feet today. Move on to my third and last point. I want to talk a bit about how Jesus' friendship with us radically changes the way that we do friendship with others. Here's the gist. If you come into a relationship with Jesus, and I know this from experience, and many of you do too, your whole world's going to change. You're going to change. In verse 10... We read that the disciples have gone with Jesus to the banging party at Matthew, the tax collector's house. Now, can you just imagine these grizzled fishermen 
at this swanky party. I can just see them up against the wall, standing on the edges saying, I cannot believe we're here. Put that camera away. Do not take a picture and put it on Instagram. I do not want anyone to see that I am hanging out with these people. What's happening? I'll tell you what's happening. Because Jesus' friendship with the disciples has led them to cross social barriers. Because they are friends with him, their friendships begin to change. That's what happens when you become friends with Jesus. You start finding that the grace that you've experienced, you want to extend to others. And so as a consequence, the old boundary lines, the dividing lines between us and them, they begin to fade. They get reconfigured. They don't really work anymore. Speaking of lines, everybody's drawing a lot of lines these days, aren't they? That's actually not a new phenomenon. There were a lot of line drawing in Jesus' own time. The Jews like to draw lines against the Samaritans. We're going to talk about that next Sunday. We all do it, and we frequently do it to give ourselves a false sense of superiority, self-righteousness. I'm over here with these good people, and the folks over there, they're the bad people, the defiled people. I'm not going to be contaminated by them. You're canceled to me. That's what it sounds like right now. You're canceled to me. Sadly, the church can sometimes do this too. I've heard stories, I've witnessed it, and if I'm really honest, Christ forgive me, I've even contributed to it. We can draw lines. And when we do that, we become a greenhouse for the, one of the most noxious of all sins, the sin of pride, which is a spiritual cancer that eats up the possibility of love and commitment and even common sense. That's how C.S. Lewis once described pride. And when that happens, and listen carefully now, when that happens, when that pride grows, there's a failure of God's grace to penetrate the human heart. Because when the grace of Jesus really comes into your heart, you find that you're no better than anybody else. That you're sick too, very sick, just like St. Matthew. And when you recognize that, you don't draw lines the same way anymore. You realize that there are not good people and bad people. Rather, there are bad people who've recognized their problems and their badness, have repented and are being restored, and there are bad people who haven't come to terms with it yet. And you realize that you're clean and approved, not, not because of the company you keep, the people you hang out with, I'm in the right crowd, not because you obey all the rules, I keep, you know, obey the commands of God. That's not what makes you clean, it's the grace of Christ that makes you clean. And when I realize that, to the extent that I realize that, I can love others and infect them with that contagion of grace. And so it comes to this, the true mark of grace on a human life is that you find yourself wanting to be with the sorts of people that Jesus befriended. Even when those people don't necessarily tick the box that we tend to like the folks we associate with to tick. You might even develop a reputation for hanging out with people that your mother does not want you to associate with. But you know what? That wouldn't be such a bad thing because that's the reputation Jesus had. Some of you may have seen this film, Little Miss Sunshine. It's kind of a wasn't really a blockbuster film, you know, it's, it's one of those kind of small batch, boutique type films, made in 2006, and it, the story is about a family who are taking their youngest child to compete in a beauty pageant, how about that? And they finally get to the big pageant, and they find that this pageant is the definition of perfection. Everything is faultless to a fault. It's ridiculous. And what do they do? They violate all the protocols and decorum. They frustrate the facade. They disrupt the veneer, and a dance party breaks out, which should happen there, 
that was supposed to be a GIF that moves. <laughs> they are dancing there. Here's the point. That's exactly what happens in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus comes barreling into Matthew's life with his subversive message of grace, and a party breaks out because the king has called him clean. That's a picture of what the church is meant to be. Less like a pageant where we're all performing and more like a party where liberated souls are dancing. That's a beautiful picture of the church. Can we be like that? Yes, we can. But only to the degree that each one of us is friends with Jesus. Or let me put it another way. Only to the extent that the words of that old hymn are not just on our lips, but pulsing through our veins and defining and shaping our lives. That hymn which sings, Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes may assail me, but he my savior, he makes me whole. I speak to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.